0: Hey everybody, this is Alex and Ben. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge.
1: What's harmful to our democracy is when you have a governor who can do emergency executive orders for over a year without having to present any kind of scientific evidence as to why, where is the role of a governor and executive authority and where is the role of local governments and communities to really govern themselves. So that's what I really focus on in our campaign is empowering local communities. That's how we need to face these issues is face the big issues facing us as a people head on and making sure that we're lifting
0: everybody when we do it. Hey, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Today, we're excited to bring you Mayor Stan Polium And Mayor Stan, not Mayor Polium, as you'll prescribe, I thought that was the best nickname for him during the podcast. He's the mayor of Sandy, Oregon, which is one of the fastest growing towns in Oregon. He's also an insurance executive. And most famously, he has pushed back against Governor Kate Brown's lockdowns across the state. He's got a bunch of national attention for that. Uh, he's also an insurance executive, and he is also exploring a run for governor. So we will see if he actually formally decides to put his name into the ring, but he's at least exploring it pretty seriously right now. And I wouldn't be shocked at all to see if he actually did come on full time and and went into the race. But Ben, what did you think of Mayor Stan?
2: First of all, exploratory and name only. The man is running for governor. It's happening. Just just wait for it. I thought it was a great interview. I thought it was one of our most interesting back and forth sort of interviews. You know, Usually our, our tone here is conversational and we hear people out, but I challenged the mayor on a couple issues and I thought his answers in response and our back and forth was really interesting. And I think it will show listeners the sort of differences in where folks are coming from. For example, I think The most interesting back and forth was on sanctuary counties and this idea of like, there's some Oregon counties that they're calling sanctuary counties for gun laws, where they just say, we're not going to follow the state law here. And he compared that to sanctuary cities for undocumented immigrants. So I think the conversation there was interesting. I also thought his question on education was revealing. So basically, those of you who've been following the COVID-19 situation in Oregon, you know that. Mayor Pulliam is sort of one of the leaders calling for schools to be reopened immediately. We need full five-day in-person and have been calling for this for a long time. And I basically asked him, you know, assuming we're back in person full-time in the fall, five days a week, what are your education priorities as governor, given that the governor is the superintendent of public instruction, basically the chief schools officer in the state? And his answer was like, that shouldn't be my job. (laughs) That shouldn't be part of the governor's portfolio, which I also thought was interesting. So yeah, fascinating conversation. And at the end, we talk a little bit about race and racial disparities in Oregon. And I think it just shows how many light years Democrats are apart from Republicans in terms of how we think about these issues. So an, an interesting interview, and I really just can't wait to see the Republican field for governor kind of be solidified. Because I do think I do think that Mayor Pulliam has a real shot at becoming the nominee.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. And I was uh, I heard of Mayor Stan just kind of through different Republican conservative circles. But I was very impressed by the interview. And it would not surprise me at all if he was the candidate who came ahead in the primary. And one thing I think that he actually did on our interview, and clearly he's comfortable with doing is that he isn't afraid of saying that he's pro life when it comes to abortion, as if some of our listeners may have uh, seen the recent piece that I wrote criticizing Senator Packwood and his approach to some of the social issues, but I think it is essentially not impossible, I'll say, but very difficult for a Republican to brag about being how pro-choice they are and how socially liberal they are because you will never out socially liberal the Democrats, and as we saw with Newt Bueller, they still attacked him for quote aligning with Donald Trump's pro-life agenda, even though I don't think anyone thinks Dr. Bueller was a threat to abortion rights in the state of Oregon. But that's politics for you, but. I was very impressed by Mayor Stan. I also think he brings some nice energy. Like, he's clearly a very outgoing guy. He gets really excited about this stuff. Like, I think that he that's flipped. Good. He uh, flipped
2: really quick, though. He went from, like, very, like, calm, funny, nice to, like, my first question. He, like, came back at me really hard, which was hilarious
0: and also, like, good for him. Yeah, no, it was it was really good. And I thought that was definitely one of the best interviews that we've done so far and also just a pretty fun one to kind of listen to the back and forth between you guys. And he had some interesting thoughts on homelessness too. I forgot he had like kind of a three section of like it flowed really well. Whatever the language was, I forgot exactly what it was, but the the viewers will, will hear it throughout the podcast, but very impressive. I consider him to be, if not the top tier candidate, definitely the top of the list. So we'll just have to continue to see what happens there. But Ben, any closing thoughts before the episode? Uh, I hope everyone enjoys this episode. I also want to give a plug.
2: We won't say who yet, but Alex and I landed a very big interview that will be coming out after this episode. So if you're not subscribed yet, make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening. We got a pretty big get for an interview that I'm really excited about. So stay tuned for um, future guests. We've already got, I think, two or three interviews
0: scheduled and things are really coming together. So we're pretty excited. Yep, very, very excited and excited to be able to roll those out. So uh, yeah, thanks again. And just make sure you hit the subscribe button. If you can give us five stars, that'd be great. I see the five star ratings is still coming in. But really excited to bring you guys a lot more cool content. So we'll see you in the episode. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge podcast. Today, we're really excited to have Mayor Stan Poliam, who's the mayor of Sandy on the podcast. And Mayor, how are you doing today?
1: We're great. We're great. Well, we're in Sandy, right? Everything is Sandy. The sky's a little bluer, you know, it's a little warmer. It's perfect here. We're doing great
0: today. How are you? Good. good. And yeah, it's, it's rainy and sort of uh, depressing here as, as it just kind of is generally in the Portland area. So we're just, we're just another day in normal. And Mayor, I do have to ask you, do you go by Mayor Stan or do you go by Mayor Poliam? Stan. Mayor Stan. Okay. I, I like Mayor Stan. It kind of reminds me of Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete. Uh, I'm not a fan at all of Mayor Pete. I literally wish any other candidate in the primary would have won besides Mayor Pete. So I was happy that Joe Biden won and Mayor Pete did not. But I do like Mayor Stan a lot. So I, well, I'm I, glad that you do can have I Can I just
2: players. clarify that it's Secretary Pete now and not Mayor Pete? So show some respect yeah, on right. the judge. <laughs>
1: He's, he's on, always mayor. Mayors are better. <laughs> mares, come on. What's your mayor? That's
0: about as good as it gets now, Ben. Let's get that right. <laughs> Awesome. So, so, yeah. So, Mayor Stan, thanks again for, for coming on the podcast. We'd just love to hear, normally, as we start off with our guests, just a little bit more about your background and what made you want to get involved in politics. Give, it, give us the full rundown there.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I'm one of those fortunate, lucky souls. I get to be mayor of my hometown, right? Which is pretty cool. I, I grew up here in Sandy. Sandy's one of these smaller communities uh, right outside the Portland metro area, 25 miles outside of Portland. And you know, I mean, it's the kind of place that you still go to the store and you run into one or two people that you know and you have a conversation with. And your tee ball and, and gymnastic teams and stuff are all sponsored by your local main street communities. And you walk into the restaurant, and you talk to the owner. A lot of time, I either grown up with them or their spouse or somebody I was a former classmate of mine, or you know, maybe it's somebody that's even a kid these days is somebody I went to school with. So it's one of those kind of those communities that are where you have a lot less of those kind of communities. But Sandys are a really special place and you think of us right there on uh, on Highway 26. I like to say we're kind of the the gateway to everything, just fun in Oregon, of Mount Hood recreation and Central Oregon and all those kinds of things. And so I grew up as a uh, in a house of a trucker, small business owners. My dad used to work two jobs, driving truck, and they dreamed big and started their own small transportation business. And so you know I grew up in a house uh, watching them just grind, you know, and fight for that business. And you think about some of the policy positions I've taken over the last year. And a half, and standing up for our community. I think a lot of it is roots of that, you know. And i when I walk in, I talk to our business owners, and I know them. I grew up with them, but I look in their eyes, and I see Tony and Sue Polium, you know, my mom and dad, who just, you know, really fought for that business to give us kids opportunities that we wouldn't have had otherwise. And And so being mayor, you know, uh, it's been a pretty crazy couple of years to kind of jump into doing something like this. And my wife, Mackenzie, and I were kind of right at that spot, I think, that have been most impacted on these lockdowns, you know being mayor of a community very dependent on our main street, having two young kids in elementary school, you know, and feeling the uh, the ramifications of these shutdowns. And we're both working parents, right? We're a middle-class family living in kind of suburban Oregon. I like to say we're, you know, we're middle-class with middle-class problems and middle-class debt, you know? and. And so you think about some of the things affecting us with these lockdowns coming out, it just really is lit in a fire under me because, you know, we're we're really feeling the ramifications of that. And I think that there's a better way to lead. And that's kind of what's really forced us to jump in and take a strong look at this. We caught a bit of a wave, you know, with standing up to the governor on some of this. And, and so now we're doing our due diligence to kind of see where this wave takes us.
0: Yeah. And so I, I do want to talk a little bit more about your time as mayor. Yeah. And one thing in particular, so Sandy obviously is not as big as Portland, but it's still a big city. From my understanding, it's also growing. It's not like there's 700 people in the town, like it is a bigger city. Uh, Republicans throughout, you know, over the past 30 years actually used to do very well in cities. We used to have a lot of mayorships, of course, for a long time, Republicans even controlled the mayorship in large cities like the New York. Over the past just decade or two, that has dramatically changed. I believe that the only sort of major city Republican mayor is the mayor of San Diego. And I actually don't even know if he's still there anymore.
1: I no, really former former out. mayor. He's running for governor now. For, okay, yeah, so he's he running for governor. Former. So
0: yeah, yeah. It, yeah. hopefully he'll take the step up. But I'm just sort of curious, from your perspective as a Republican who is, is a mayor in a growing and a bigger city, what's sort of the missing sauce across the country? Like, why aren't we doing well in urban areas anymore? What are some strategies that you've seen effective? I know, of course, that basically, from my understanding, your office was not partisan when you ran, but I imagine that a lot of people did know you were associated with the Republican Party. I'm just sort of curious, what's that sauce that we used to have, but that we're missing from your perspective?
1: Yeah, you know, I think as well as quite frankly, it's the same sauce we had as Republicans in Oregon, which is developing, you know, real pragmatic, common sense solutions to the problems in front of us. And I think too often as Republicans, we don't offer up a vision, you know, of our policy platform and our vision for our communities and our states. And we get tied into the national issues. And some. of these big picture things but you think about the issues that face communities like mine and Sandy you know one is growth and and the style in which we want to grow and kind of the culture and the traditions and fabric of our community that's really important and holding on to those things it's, you know, economic development and making sure that we have family wage jobs so that people can work, live and play, you know, in our community. It's a, you know, I talk a lot about transportation being a family values issue. If you have, you know, 60% of our community in Sandy's in the commuter shed going to Portland. And so if we're sitting 45 minutes, an hour and a half in traffic, you're not coaching that after school sport, you know, you're not, you know, volunteering for your local nonprofit organizations. Uh, Safety, you know, we talk a lot about the default. Fund the police and the different police reforms things. But, you know, safety is incredibly important, especially in suburban communities, you know, in these local mm-hmm. communities with these young families. We need to concentrate on that, you know, little things like, you know, transit and the ability to have access to proper transit in your community and having a walkable downtown core and tourism and recreation and parks and things for people to do. I think we miss out on these livability issues, you know, where, you know, and that was kind of our secret sauce. You know, Tip O'Neill used to always say that, you know, all politics is local. And when I ran for mayor, we talked about local mayor issues and the problems facing our community and our kind of, you know, our common sense and pragmatic, you know, approach to solving these problems. And now we're looking at running for governor and you don't see me talking a lot about national issues. We're talking about issues that are facing us here in Oregon and what are some reasonable pragmatic, you know, solutions to those problems. So I think that's the secret sauce is returning to local, addressing these problems, not being afraid to address these problems, just coming up with these answers, these solutions that aren't Republican or Democrat, right. But are ones that really have a chance to bring your community together to address them that's a perfect transition to what I wanted to ask you about in
2: this section, which is like in, when we recorded the intro, of the first episode, I think Alex cited tip O'Neill's quote about all politics is local. And our thesis is basically that that's dead, that the era of all politics is local is over because yeah. as you know, if you make it to the general election, mm-hmm. you can have all the ideas and position papers on, on transportation and you know, the sort of nonpartisan issues, but your position on abortion and mm-hmm. LGBT rights and race and the sort of hot button social issues of the moment, those are going to be what people want to talk about, particularly in the urban centers. So I guess that's what I'm curious about how you think about that. Do you identify as a social conservative? Or do you think like that's not something that you want to be part of the campaign necessarily? And how do you balance, you know, the primary
1: side versus the general election side? So, as far as being a social conservative or not, you know, I'm a stand conservative. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I'm pro life. I've always been strongly pro life, but at the same time, you know, here in a rural community in Sandy, my high school, my senior year in high school, we had a mock Congress, you know, like you'd some communities do, and mine was, you know, legalizing same sex marriage, right, in rural, you know, Sandy, Oregon, back in the late '90s. So. I mean, I'm, I'm a Stan conservative, uh, and I think that I match up a lot, quite frankly, with conservatives kind of in my age group in the way that we view some of those issues. And I think, you know, obviously, people like to talk about some of those larger, larger social issues, and those are really important issues, and people deserve to have, you know, candidates answers to that. But you think about, I'm on a podcast with you guys today, and one thing I've noticed is that so these podcasts are starting to pop up, you know, all over the state, and they're getting a lot of play in these local community pages on social media and these different things and so i i agree that you know especially over the last four years with uh, trump presidency we've gotten a lot of kind of this vacuum second you know, of these washington dc you know politics but i think we have an opportunity if we do it right you know if we get involved in these local communities we're on a listening tour going in these different communities across the state we're joining in on podcasts and you know uh, i i'm on the um uh, the backwoods brothers and estacada you know i'm i'm going on that um and and so i think there is an opportunity to lo- you know focus on some of this local stuff as a mayor you know that feels very natural to me i'll i'll tell you you know it's been a crazy two years especially the last year and a half and when i think about how we have faced some of these issues we've got republicans and you know we're all nonpartisan but you got registered republicans and democrats in our city council you got parents you got grandparents you know people all over the spectrum And I remember when this COVID stuff came out, I was really vocal about it. And some of our counselors were like, whoa, man, you know, mayor, you're kind of, you're out (laughs) front here, brother, you're out front. And, you know, so what happened is we had a community dialogue about it. You know, Rhea from Sandy Family Restaurant came and talked to our council. We had... Paul and Lila Reed from Mount Hood Athletic Club, Denise from Palest Pizza, and it was like, oh wow, these are people. You know, we had a community conversation. We had a conversation as neighbors, and when we voted on the letter to go to the governor, it was seven to zero, right? And and those be and the letter was the letter was the letter we all compromised and came together on. And I just think that. With how divided we are nationally and even as a state, this is an opportunity to return these issues locally to local municipalities where people are making these decisions as neighbors. And same in our school system with empowering local school boards. And, you know, this listening to a lot of what I hear of is people say, you know, you know, you get into critical race theory and, you know, sex education, all this stuff going on in schools. And people say, Stan, I just want the ability to opt in or out. Right. Like, I just want the individual ability to decide for me and my family and my kids are we're going to opt into these things or opt out of them. And so that's what I really focus on in our campaign is it's empowering local communities, empowering individuals. And I think this is the time for it. Unprecedented lockdowns, you know, people, you know, stomping all over individual rights and liberties. I think it's a fresh outlook and stuff that will really resonate with people.
0: So, getting in a little bit to the lockdowns, and I know we'll talk about this in a bit as well. But so, you were actually mentioned in a New York Times article. I think it's called Hundred Days in Chaos." Or, yeah, and I don't. Like by the way, that
1: happened. never gets old. When people are like, you know, Mayor recently in the New York Times, it's just like, how cool. is that? <laughs> yeah.
0: So, so, and that's again, that's one thing I think really goes back to our thesis: is this nationalization of politics and the sense of that what was the experience like for you? Again, Sandy is not a small town. It's not a blip on the map, but I mean, I doubt most people in New York City know or Washington (laughs) DC know where Sandy Oregon is, unless you're from Oregon. You know, I think that your decision was, I don't want to call it dramatic, but it was a big step basically to say, we're going to ignore these lockdowns. We're going to focus on local issues. I'm going to take leadership basically on this. And the New York Times, of course, felt that it was sort of a big enough story to be able to cover. I mean, what was that like for you to basically gain national media attention for, and maybe, you know, everyone's a politician. Maybe you were trying to gain some media attention for it. Maybe you weren't, but I'm sure you were maybe a little bit shocked when the New York Times decided that they should cover you for this. Yeah. Uh, no. What was that experience like? And yeah. I mean, I'm curious, like were people in Sandy, your friends and family like, whoa, Stan, like why is the New York Times <laughs> writing about this? Like this is a big decision, but like, is this really a national issue for the national discourse of what's going on in Sandy, Oregon? Like, what was that experience like? What were people talking about to you? R- really curious about that.
1: Yeah, you know, so what's funny about it is, and we were talking earlier is that Mayor Stan or Mayor Pulliam and then Mayor Pete is, I just got done reading mayor, one of Mayor Pete's books about him, him being mayor. And, and I bring this up to say, so at the end of it, he talks about he was running for chair of the DNC at the time. And he goes back in his whole career, you know, people talk about his ambitions. It's just a, stepping stone and he goes one thing that was funny is after making national media people never asked me about stepping stone and stuff anymore in north bend they just they were proud they felt like our community was represented on a national level And that's really was kind of the response here in Sandy is, is we have a bit of a swagger to our step, quite honestly, where, you know, we feel like we've kind of linked in together and really stood up for ourselves and our local community, you know, with some of the shutdowns that are happening, we stood up with our neighbors. And so it was, uh, it's been unreal, you know, for the New York Times to reach out to get uh, Fox News appearances and those kinds of things. You know, it's something that we'd certainly never planned on, but it really started to give us a lot of community pride, you know, and I got in the car during that New New Year's Day movement, we were driving around these different communities and doing these rallies. And I just, I can't even explain when, you know, you're the mayor of an 11,000 community, Sandy, Oregon, and you drive a couple hours away and there's several hundred cars, you know, waiting for you, you know, and in a rally of, of several hundred people that know who you are. We got into a car the other day, we were in Madras and we had lunch at a local Mexican restaurant. And, you know, we got the masks on and I got a backwards hat going and, and the cook comes out and goes, I know who you are. <laughs> (laughs) Or, you know, I recognize (laughs) you and, you know, and, you know, and shakes my hand and those, Uh, this last holiday season we had people leaving like you know cookies and stuff different neighbors with these incredible notes and those those are things that hadn't happened you know in our public service yet that's just been a pretty incredible feeling and uh, we're proud i think a lot of us are proud of what we've done over the last year and a half to stand up for our local community and to really push back against the governor's lockdowns. you know you mentioned people in new york may have never heard of sandy before and you know i think a lot of us out here we're proud of our internet believe it or not you know we kind of led the world and high-speed broadband internet, SandyNet, we have eighty per, over eighty percent of our um, people that live here actually log on and use SandyNet as their internet provider. So we kind of we already kind of have that in the fabric of what we do. We're kind of innovative and do things out here, and so it's been it's been pretty cool. It's been a pretty cool experience. You've mentioned a couple of times, so I feel like we got to we got to just jump into yeah. the issue
2: of of the lockdowns and your response and how that has sort of springboarded your campaign. Sure. And I think you're the first Republican, first candidate of either party, I think, to announce an exploratory committee. So one thing I've been thinking about a lot recently, and I've talked to Alex about this, is you've probably seen, so the legislature in previous sessions has passed gun safety measures, gun control measures that rural counties, conservative counties don't like. And in some of those counties, they call themselves um, Sanctuary. sanctuary counties. Yeah. where basically they say, we're not enforcing that law here. And in some ways, that's sort of what your approach has been with the lockdown measures. They're not laws, but they do have the force of law by being from the governor's office, which you would have in an emergency situation were you to be elected governor. And so what I've been thinking about is, isn't that troubling for our democracy? If So it's troubling for me with obviously Democrats in control, because you know those are things that I agree with. But I imagine it would be troubling for you if you were governor, and passed a piece of legislation, and then Multnomah and Washington and Marion County all said, well, we're not going to enforce that law here, or ignored your executive order on some other issue. So how do you balance that kind of
1: Yeah? Yeah, so I'll push back a little bit, to be honest with you. So no, please. You, you used the word democracy, yeah. and then you said passed, and then you used, you know, order. Right. And so where I would go there is I would say, you know, what's harmful to our democracy is when you have a governor who can do emergency executive orders for over a year without having to present any kind of scientific evidence as to why, you know, you're placing these orders into effect. And it's even more, you know, frustrating when you watch our state representatives and state senators not even represent our communities, you know, and be called into the legislature. They're obviously in a long session now, but most of these lockdowns were before that session was in order. You know, where are these folks? Why are they not being called into a special session? At the very least, they should be ratifying these emergency orders. And you know, I mean, we're in in super majorities here of Democrats, same party as Governor Kate Brown, so they should have been able to do that. She has the votes to do that. But what they don't have is the backbone to do it. Right. And so instead of passing things, they just do it through executive fiat and orders. And so that to me is what's really troubling about, you know, our democracy with where we're at now. I get the sanctuary thing. It's funny. I was just in central Oregon over this last weekend and I'd get the question. So where are you on sanctuaries? I said, well, when are you asking me? Are you asking me when conservatives were upset about (laughs) sanctuaries because of immigration laws? Are you asking me now because we're, you know, trying to do our own sanctuaries for the second amendment? How about we're just consistent, right? I don't, Republican, Democrat, let's just be consistent. I'm against sanctuaries, right? I believe that our second amendment rights a lot of the time should be a federal issue. It's our federal constitution. That's where we should be taking up those issues a lot of the time. Our immigration laws is a federal issue. It's a federal issue. And so if we want to invoke change there, we need to, we need to elect to elect congressmen and senators that represent us at a national level to change those laws. But the idea that we're going to start looking at things and saying, even though it's federal jurisdiction to say, you know what, we're just not going to follow it here, you know, at the state level, you know, I'm against that. And, you know, some of the reporting that has happened about like, because I could see Ben where you would want to come back and say, but mayor, you know you you yourself you know wanted to open up against the stuff. and where I would say we are different. one is Sandy never closed okay so there was never a reason for us to open up. That was a state shutdown. And so there was no like it's funny for all the reports about sandy opening. We weren't opening, we were just supporting our local small business owners and their right to open if they decided to. And what we were doing is we were advocating saying, if you decide to open, we're gonna stand with you. We're gonna raise money to help you with your fines. We're gonna plug you into legal resources and that kind of a thing. So, so I apologize, uh, I didn't go off on T. No, 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 I, I
2: appreciate the dialogue, but now I have to push back on your pushback. Yes, okay, good, world, good. So, So you basically said that you don't think that the governor should have been able to have that extended executive authority. But my pushback would be but she does that is part of her power and in our series of checks and balances as a government the legislature does have the authority to curtail that executive power they have not chosen to do so you can be upset with the legislature for not doing that but that's something that they didn't do and we have the court system which has never in since the lockdown said the governor's executive order expires and so what in effect has happened is you have you know local leaders such as yourself who are sort of choosing not to follow the law, sure. which is, you know, contrary to what I what I, uh, what I would tease Titus with, which is, I thought Republicans
1: were the party of rule of law. So what, you know, why aren't we following the law? But Ben, I thought I thought your party was the party of civil disobedience. No, <laughs> right? And so it, I just I find I just find. But it but little- part
2: part of civil disobedience is owning the consequences of your actions.
1: Oh really? What, really? <laughs> After what we've seen happening in Multnomah County with riots on the street every single night with the district attorney in Multnomah County, that is essentially legalized violent crime, capturing these guys one day, putting them back on the street the other, all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're going to hold people, you know, you, you want to know the only people being held responsible for the consequences of their actions as people like Melissa Adams out at Spud Monkey, you know, in Gresham, who has had a horrific year. She's lost her husband. Her son committed suicide over the past year. She's lost one of her restaurants. She's down to the one at Spud Monkeys. She's had a press conference with us earlier in the week. They've opened up against the mandate. Yesterday, actually two days ago, Multnomah County Health shows up at her front door to be able to put inspections down on her and to find her business. Think about this. This in Multnomah County, where we have mass homelessness on the streets, breaking all of our camping rules and everything else. We got riots going on downtown. We have skyrocketing, you know, gun violence and everything else going on. But they got time for Melissa Adams at Spud Monkeys to come down there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying. and, And no doubt that there have been tremendous personal consequences and suffering for a lot of people over the last year. But to me, all those things you cited are sort of separate issues from the issue of like, do we have a system of governance that we all respect and participate in, or do we allow our feelings about these other things? Totally. So I guess so. Let me just put it to you this way. If you're governor and you sign an executive order, which there are non-emergency executive orders that governors often sign, what would your response be if Multnomah County said, we're not going to enforce that here? That that doesn't play here.
1: Well, I mean, it honestly, to me, in a lot of ways, depends on the executive order. I mean, okay. and I only say that meaning, I mean, there are executive orders, I think, he, that we've seen, that I'll say that I've seen both in President Trump's administration and President Biden's administration and with Governor Brown, as we just talked about, that are far overreaching, you know, executive orders. These executive orders are supposed to be guidance-based, right? So, I mean, it's it's a hypothetical, you know, I think any political strategist, right, would tell me, you never, never answer a hypothetical question, but I will. I'll tell you where I struggle with executive orders is as I going back to our earlier conversation of local control and stepping on you know others' authority as is- I get questions all the time about like Ron DeSantis, you know, I, am a big fan of Ron DeSantis, but, you know, he's done a few executive orders that really do kind of trample on, you know, local authority a little bit. And so that is kind of the inner battle that I have with myself a lot is, is where, where is the role of a governor and executive authority and where is the role of local governments and communities to really, you know, govern themselves. So what I'd like my answer to that, Ben, and it's, it's a total weak answer. You're not going to lie. No, no. <laughs> uh, but, but my answer to that is, is that I would, I, I believe I would never have an executive order that's so outrageous that it's not going to be abided by, but you know, maybe that's just wishful. thinking. you. Know? No, I, I appreciate the
2: dialogue there, mayor. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that is kind of the, the beauty of democracy in a way, right. Is like, for example, like weed legalization in Oregon when it first came out, I mean, technically, under the Trump administration, I'm assuming that the feds could have came in and just started arresting people left and right, maybe even right. some state legislatures and things like that. Obviously, I think that they saw that probably as maybe not a step over their authority, but just something that they weren't going to do. So I mean, that but is why kind weren't of they the
1: working together. You know, I, that's what really bothered me about the whole like Trump. I'm going to send the fed, you know, federal marshals in and Biden saying they're not allowed. And I mean, to me, I, you know, we've got a problem in Portland. Right. And so the mayor should then step up and go to the president. I don't care who the president is, if it's Biden or Trump and say, we need help. Right. And this is the kind of help that we need, whether it's federal marshals or deputizing our state police is, you know, federal marshals to get them in a district court, whatever it might be. Uh, so that I mean, that is part of, I think, what is troublesome is is we have this party fighting stuff when we really need to be putting that stuff to the side and have conversations like what we're having today.
0: Yeah. And so actually, that that's uh, the topic we wanted to address with you as well as homelessness. Uh, yeah. And actually, I had read your piece on the Oregon Way Substack. Uh, shout out to Kevin Frazier, who was also on our podcast a couple of weeks ago. But one thing it it well that uh, actually shocked me a little bit about it was just how in-depth, actually, some of your solutions were to the issue, especially for someone who's considering running for higher office. Because with you know, most of this stuff, it's just kind of a couple of bullet points that are like, this is bad, and this is good. Uh, but it was actually, you know, that. you talk through your, I <laughs> recommend that people go and check out the piece, because it actually was no matter if you're to the left or to the right, I think that they would enjoy reading it. But I mean, just from growing up in the Portland area, at least from, I don't know about the numbers exactly, I'm assuming they've probably increased, but sort of the visibility of homelessness has become astounding. I mean, honestly, yeah. even driving from my uh, residents to the airport it's like you see all these tents on the highway there's all this trash on the highway like and they seem to just continuously grow basically by, by the years so we're hoping we could talk about that issue with you but kind of from from your perspective as a mayor and actually one thing you pointed out which i thought was interesting is that 40 percent of the homeless population used to just be located basically in the portland metropolitan area but they've actually sort of spread basically throughout the state now and they're kind of I'm assuming the numbers have increased in Portland, but there's just more people and they're in more places. So think about that, Alex.
1: I mean, sorry to interrupt, but think about that for a second. Right. Forty percent of the homelessness used to be concentrated downtown Portland just 10 years ago. And now only 20 percent of homelessness is concentrated in the downtown core. And yet think about how much worse that problem has gotten in the downtown core over the last 10 years So that just starts to give you just a little flavor of the issue of it growing out of Portland, sure. But as the issue continues to grow in Portland itself, so it's just blowing up the homelessness issue here.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I know that when we had Minority Leader Drazen on before, too, she said that Oregon actually has something along the lines of like the worst or least amount of available resources for youth homelessness in particular, Mm -hmm. too. So I'm curious, if you were governor, what what, what would be your sort of broad approach to, to the homeless issue? And what does it kind of look like?
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, so it's kind of a three-pronged approach. It's very similar to the old mayor, Bud Clark, which everybody should go to Goose Hollow It is his place here in Portland. My, my daughter, Lucy, and I, it's her favorite spot. But, you know, the three-pronged approach really is is to help those who want it, be firm with those who don't and help create a safe environment for neighbors and everybody to feel and restaurants and businesses to feel safe in. And, you know, a lot of the time people talk about this, this night Circuit, Ninth Circuit course decision out of, out of Boise that says, you know, you need to provide alternative land and inventory For a homeless, if you're going to move that homeless camp along, and people really say that that hamstrings people, and and you know I refuse to be one of those that feel hamstrung. And Cascade Policy Institute, local uh, um, nonpartisan think tank, kind of in the Portland area, did
0: a white. My mother, my mother actually works there.
1: Is that right? Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah. So Eric Fruits there, and at Cascade Policy Institute uh, about two or three months ago did a white paper that didn't get much attention that really talked about the kind of history of homelessness in the Portland region and stuff and and offered some really common sense, sensible solutions, you know, stuff like tracking the vacancy rate. You know, we have all this housing that's available. We had the metro housing bond that passed. We have all these great nonprofits. We have uh, local governments that take over these hotels and stuff. But what we never do is track the vacancy rate. So, you know, the city of Modesto, Every morning they call around and they track the vacancy and then they put, they give their officers at a meeting that morning, you know, the resources they need. So when they come across a homeless camp, they say, hey, here's your alternative housing. Now you need to move along. And we're in, you know, Tech Capital USA. There is no reason that we can't develop an app you know, that uh, that's at the fingertips of police officers where they say, here's, here's the vacancy, here's your available housing. And we have places like the Expo Center and the old uh, horse track that, you know, acres and acres of property where we can help house people and move them into and then plug them into resources that bring them out of homelessness. I recently had a meeting with Homer Williams, who worked with Jordan Snitzer on the Wapato Project in the Portland area. And they've come up with very innovative housing solutions that, you know, you see these kind of wheeler villas all over Portland. And what Homer's talking about doing is something way better that actually has running water and sewer and and access to food and resources. And the only rule is, is you got to follow the rules, right? And, you know, and, and but he, what he can't find right now is anyone in, in state or local government, you know, that, that actually have the backbone to stand up and show the leadership to, you know, support something like that. I think we need to triple the size of the state police, you know, and get it back to about the size, you know, that where, where they were. Were. We were talking about, you know, the riots and all that. But these are folks that are manning a lot of the recreational trails that we have around the area and, and doing the hunting and fishing licenses and all those kinds of things. We got to get them stronger. And then, then, how would then the, can I ahead. clarify we, a question? How yeah. would
2: this, how would the state police interact with the homelessness problem?
1: Well, one is you would get more police officers on the streets. And so like when you're, when they're on the front lines and they get a call and there's a homeless encampment along a sidewalk, you know, they have the vacancy rate, right? They have that app on their phone that I was talking about, but you, you need more of them to invoke to those folks. You also need some of those folks that are working with nonprofits and different agencies to clean up the garbage and to help clean up, you know, a lot of these camps. So, and then, yeah, go ahead. So um, you're,
2: the, the three points you had was help those who want it. Be yep. firm with those who don't. know, what was the third point?
1: Help people in the community feel safe.
2: Okay. So my, I think there's something missing from that, that I want to hear you weigh in on, which is okay. the sort of front end problem. Homelessness is growing. And it feels to me that a lot of what we talk about when we talk about addressing homelessness is about the symptom, but not the underlying problems, which is an economic system that leaves people behind, a behavioral health system that's severely underfunded, an addiction crisis that is out of control in our state. Right. And, and so- Do you have thoughts on on this sort of broader like these structural big systems wide issue that a governor is uniquely situated I would say to bring us together to solve, how would you go about the sort of structural problems that are feeding into what shows up as a homelessness problem um, in our cities.
1: Well, what I would say there is is you know, the, the housing first initiatives that have been coming out of, you know, the legislature in these different areas have been proven not to work, right? They're living in this imaginary world that's like the individual that's walking down the street have suffering from a mental health crisis, that's self-medicating with heroin and living in a tent in an abandoned parking lot. They're just an affordable home away from their life, like being put back on track and being normal. And that's not true, right? That is not true. What's true is, is that we need to get into preventative Services we we've got to you know help out the mental health issues that are going around. We need full wraparound services. You know the, those are it's more government, quite frankly, that comes into that, but it's also propping up our local nonprofits and faith communities to be able to get involved in that. But you know one thing you know you hear some of my you know my practical ideas that I'm introducing there. That's because you know I, I understand prevention, but we got a problem right yeah, now it's got to right? be both it's yeah. got to be both right it's got to be prevention but it's also got to be addressing the issues that we have right now but that's why where you're sending these folks when you're taking that camp and you're you know taking it out of out of your downtown court and into an area you've got to be able to plug those individuals into services where they can get help but i'll tell you the one thing i did really learn ben you know on that hike that alex is talking about from the you know the the column that i wrote recently is is that you know, as I was talking to the woman that I referenced in that article, you know, the one thing that came really apparent is, is that they want their own individuality, you're right, they want their own liberty, and their own freedom. So a lot of the things that we've talked about earlier, and so finding a way where you're balancing, you know, people need to follow a certain set of rules, and they need to be plugged into things to help bring them out of homelessness. But we've got to find ways to balance that with their own private space, their own individuality, and all those kinds of things as well. For sure. Um, I pre- Yeah, I, I appreciate your thinking there. It's a hard issue, but I'll tell you, I'm trying to find answers, right? And, and, and that's the one thing that does bother me about these things is so many times, and whether you like the answers or not, you know, that's fine. Let's debate those things, right? Let's have a conversation about it. But Alex, I mean, to what you were talking about earlier, that is like the chip on my shoulder is, is how many times we've seen people run for office on homelessness or other issues, but they point at it and they don't provide any kind of ideas. And You know, I'd worked behind the scenes in politics for a lot of years, and I left for about a decade. And the reason I left is, is you'd get people elected into office promising all these things, and then nothing would ever happen, right, as a result of it. And so if you you sense a chip on my shoulder a little bit, it's some of that, it's some of the politics of old, you know, and, and some of the fluff without actually giving concrete answers to stuff. So that's what we're trying to do. We will probably shoot ourselves in the foot a little bit doing it, but, you know, we're committed to doing it. You'll
0: get in trouble from your opponents for what you say on here. (laughs) Fine.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, I I agree. And I think, um, like, I was trying to find the article here, but Multnomah County Commissioner um, Sharon Myron had made a statement recently that Alex and I were texting about where she basically said, like, The city of Portland and Multnomah County just invested a bunch more resources. And she said, I think it's lacking the urgency and the scale that we need, which resonated with me. And so I think like as you're exploring and and forming policy positions, I think it would be worth talking to. We had someone from the Drug Policy Alliance earlier where we talked about drug legalization. And I'm not, not suggesting that's the issue here, but Oregon's addiction and recovery community, Oregon Recovers, I think is starting to think in ways that. There, there haven't been a voice at the table representing that constituency previously in Oregon. And I think they're saying some interesting things. Mm-hmm. So worth checking out. But I do want to transition us to talking about education. That's sort of my wheelhouse as a policy issue. Yeah. But I want to come at it in a support bit of a me different here, Alex. support. Me, Alex. <laughs> well, actually, I think this might be uh, an easier one because I'm not what I want to take out of this is reopening and COVID because my assumption and hope is
1: that's the easy one for me. <laughs> exactly. It's Come too on, easy. Man.
2: Okay. We can get it out of the way. Uh, mayor, do you support reopening schools? Absolutely. Okay. We got yeah. it out of the way. The
1: time, five days a week.
2: <laughs> My assumption and my hope is that regardless of who the next governor is, schools are going to be reopened five days in person, looking pretty much like it used to look. I do think that there are going to be lingering problems and trauma and learning loss that we're going to be dealing with for many, many years. But I want to ask you. So one thing that I think is interesting, I'll just say that without editorializing, about Oregon is our governor is the superintendent of schools. Um, Our governor is the the chief instructional officer of the state's public education system. So COVID aside, what is your vision for Oregon's public schools? You know, what do you want to achieve in the realm of education? You know, Jeb Bush famously said he was going to be an education governor of Florida. So I'm curious if you have thoughts broadly on what's working, what's not, and what you would do differently in Oregon's public education system
1: yeah so i mean i would just start with saying that the governor should not be superintendent of public schools
2: oh interesting you know
1: know, we have a top-down system here in oregon for our educational system I want to see things more ground up, you know, and empowering these local school boards and parents to be able to, you know, talk about the curriculum in their their districts and help provide, you know, some more school choice. My kids go to a charter school, public charter school um, here in the Oregon Trail School District as an international baccalaureate, one of these IB schools. So you've got the Mandarin stuff going on there, which is really cool. And I think that's what we need to be seeing here in these different communities where we get towards a lot more of like a competition-based skilled set, you know, skilled-based type education system. Too often, you know, we think that people need to go to college and get a four-year education. Not everybody needs, quite frankly, to go to college and get a four-year education. A lot of people do, right? But what we need to do is develop a school system that's more formed where we can get individual, you know, customized, you know, education opportunities for our kids and to empower our local, our parents on a local level to help kind of guide people through that process and get more competition and marketplace principles into our schools. Now, I don't believe that's a full voucher system. And I don't necessarily believe that, you know, that that's the solution, some of our rural communities, because, you know, okay, great school choice. And, you know, in my town of two or three schools, you know, thank you very much. Uh, So we've got to find ways to lift that up. But it goes back to a little bit of my like opt in or opt out too often right now here in Oregon is we have state legislators that get elected out of big population centers like Portland and Eugene who have an unconcentrated amount level of power in the state and as a result they're dictating to people in Central Oregon and Southern Oregon and Eastern Oregon and along the coast what the educational priorities and future for their children to be and that you know that's that is not what our country was founded on our country was founded on individual liberties and rights and 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 helping you know steer the future of, of your family how You see fit, and that's where the decision should, quite frankly, be made. So we'd be looking to make some pretty strong, you know, uh, changes in our education system to really empower local communities with a ground-up system instead of top-down.
0: Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit more about that too, because if I was running for Oregon governor at some point as a Republican, I would shove the education issue down Democrats' throat Uh, repeatedly. I believe, Ben, correct me if I'm wrong, but Oregon is. Either last or second to last in the nation for high school graduation rates. And yeah, but it's I've like
2: the, it's like the most misleading statistic of all time. It's also harder to graduate from high school here because we have a more rigorous program than in almost any other state. But well, yes, that's
0: because we
1: lead the way in test scores it's so rigorous here in Oregon. Well, no, like what the
2: requirements of how you what you need to graduate from high school. Like in Iowa, it's like 12 credits to graduate. And in here it averages like 24 credits per district. So it's just harder here than in other states.
0: Gotcha. I, I I still think it's, it's, it's pretty bad. It's a a bad statistic for sure. Yeah. And I've actually always thought, I imagine, you know, and I, I love Alabama. My father actually lives in Alabama, but to tell Portland liberals, like, our education system is worse than that in Alabama. I always thought that would be a great talking point. Seriously, yeah, for, for the progressives and the. the I mean, if you believe it's true, you, I think you should
2: believe. I don't believe that's true, but anyway. Well, we're go- I
0: mean, I think a lot yeah. of the potential classes are probably just credentialing, and people won't really use them necessarily in their in their jobs anyway. But I mean, just getting into it, you know, it's not even really a like a liberal or conservative issue in the sense of that you have urban schools that have horrible graduation rates. Like some of these schools are basically one in three kids are graduating. You also have rural schools who have some of these schools which are just atrocious. They have one in three kids graduating. To me, that really should sound off alarm bells to everybody that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're red or blue, our, our schools are just totally failing our, our, our students in some way. What do you think are some of those solutions to where we could bridge some of those gaps? And I I, I actually think it's interesting that you say too, like. I think the generic sort of Republican talking point is school choice, as you were saying. But sure. that, of course, if you have a single school in your district, like that doesn't really help you because mm-hmm. you don't have any other options. So what do you think that looks like practically and like taking either like, are we taking kids out of bad schools and putting them in good schools? Or are we providing some sort of subsidy for online education or maybe some extra tutoring or something like that? I'm just really curious of what the sort of response you would, you would give is because yeah, I think that's an issue that Everyone should care about, frankly, and that the Republican Party really hasn't done a good job, not even just in Oregon, but nationally about talking about education. I do think we have a lot to contribute on the issue, too.
1: Yeah. You know, one is I think we need to realize that education is twofold a little bit. And, you know, this is going to be kind of a funny line to say, but education is there to educate our children. It's also there as a place for our children to go to receive daycare hours while we have dual working households. And so there's kind of this dual, you know, give and take with it. And what I'll say is I think we should get our kids in the classroom five full days a week. And I bet it's going, oh, no, he's back getting them back in five days a week. We totally try to steer him from this. But we, we're talking a lot about permanent rules right now. What about five full days a week as a permanent rule here in the state? We talk so often about, you know, classroom time and, you know, how often our students are actually getting, you know, educational classroom time. And yet we get all these in-service days and stuff that happen. And, you know, what does that do? It really gives parents the non-stability that they actually need and crave because you've got dual working, you know, households. At a minimum, parents should be assured the stability of a five-day school week, both for themselves And for their children to get that additional classroom time, you know, and you think about, you know, all the, well, teachers need in-service days, they need the ability to prep, but what would the private sector do, right? They would do flex scheduling, they would, you know, combine classes together on a Friday afternoon with one instructor while the, the other instructor, you know, does their planning, all those kinds of things. I think the other thing is we need new ideas coming out of this, uh, these shutdowns and COVID-19, look at how we're talking right now, right? We're on Zoom, we're doing it virtually, you know, and 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 I'm certainly not about all this hybrid learning and everything that we've seen like it has been over the last year, but I do think there needs to be a recognition that we don't always have to be in the same room all the time, you know, to be able to move the needle and to be able to educate and get things done. I think that there are ways that we need to integrate, you know, technology in the classroom and really reimagine our education system because, you know, the here here's, what really bothers me about the statistics that we were all throwing around is, is you get these numbers to say, we're among the best school districts in the state of one of the worst states of education in the country. So now we're one of the worst states in education in the country and one of the worst countries to get your education in, you know, you know well, that, that is getting- But do you, wait, do you, do you, and, you and, believe that? You think the United
2: States has one of the worst education well, well,
1: systems? I, well, yeah, you didn't let me finish my sentence. Right, 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 right. What I'm saying is, is when compared to the countries that we need to be competing against, right? When when you talk about that, we're, we need to be competing against a, a vastly growing Chinese, you know, economy, what's going on over in Japan and other nations and stuff right now that, you know, I'm talking, I'm not talking, I'm not going to compare us, Ben, to, you know, third world countries And everything else, but you do see other countries are really investing in their educational systems and really trying to reimagine it. And those those are things that we should be doing. I agree, but I think most of the many of those countries at least are not actually serving all their
2: kids. And if you happen to be in a rural village, you're not going to get a public education. And so their test scores look better than ours because we Uh serve every kid. Uh And I also know that many of students when they graduate from their public education systems come to this country to go to college. Um, So I, I think the statistics can be misleading. I've been thinking a lot about the weaponization of statistics. Like, you know, it's easy. That's a
1: bipartisan issue, by the way. Yeah, right,
2: right. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, But we've only got, we've got less than 10 minutes left. So I want to ask you another question. It's sort of about what we've been talking about, but it's broader. And it's about the issue of race, which obviously has had a huge spotlight in the national conversation and in the state conversation over the last year. But sort of aside from police reform and public safety, which I think it often talked about in in the context of race, but I think the issue is bigger. If you look at economic outcomes, public health outcomes, educational outcomes in this state, in Oregon, people of color have worse outcomes on average than white folks. And in particular, I'm I'm referring to the Latino community, which is a larger population in the state and also the black and African-American community. So on the issue of race, I'm sure you've been thinking about this issue like we all have over the last year, As governor, what would you do? What would be your vision or strategies for how we could reduce those disparities as a state so that outcomes are equitable and that race isn't a predictor for how someone navigates our educational system or our healthcare system? How do you think about that issue?
1: Yeah, you know, especially after the last year and a half where inequities have really grown as a result of these lockdowns, you know, I mean, not to just keep going back to the lockdowns, but if you're going to be talking about inequities and everything as as a whose children is getting educated right now, people who can afford to send their kids to private school, right, or people who can afford to bring in a tutor into their schools to help their children and stuff who are stuck at home or or in this virtual learning. And then you think about the disparities of, you know, who make up the employment groups of these Main Street businesses who have had to shut down and their access to get their unemployment insurance and stuff over the last year and to be made whole, especially during the holidays. I think our, in, in, our inequities are actually growing right now as a result of, of these lockdowns. You know, I'll talk to you about, you know, George Floyd and you know and the murder that happened there and how we react as a community here i feel an obligation on my one it's my hometown so i feel like i feel everything a lot maybe a lot more but i felt this you know we're second fastest growing city in oregon we're an old rural community is becoming more and more urbanized with a lot more of diversity coming into town and younger families and so i really felt an obligation to kind of lead a community dialogue you know about you know what our own our conscious and our unconscious biases are you know and being what would be, you know a welcoming community is all about. But, you know, I I, I got to tell you, you know, under the Trump presidency, you know, a lot of our inequ- inequities started to really come together because one tide lifts all boats. And the best way to really help people along is to improve our education system for everyone. One way to get people, you know, more money in their pocket is to improve our local economies and stuff for everyone, you know, to provide tax relief for, everyone. And so that's really the way I, you know, how do I look to lead is, is I think we spend way too much time, you know, pointing fingers to different special interest groups and categories and you're a senior or you're, you know, you're young or you're a young family or you're this or that, you know, or what race you are, gender you are. And you know, we got so many more important issues in talking about what separates us. You know, we're one of the worst educational systems in the in the country, statistically. You know, we, we've got, you know, crime rates going nuts. We've got riots going on. We've, our local Main Street economies are going to be struggling for years because of these shutdowns. I mean, that's how we need to face these issues is face the big issues facing us as a people head on and making sure that we're lifting everybody when we do it.
0: Well said, Mayor. And and great. We just wanted to close it out with one more question. So we know that you're exploring a run for governor and that you have announced an exploratory committee. Yeah, yeah. What the heck is an exploratory committee? How <laughs> yeah. is that different than actually running for governor? Pick a
2: team, uh, Mayor. You're in or yeah, you're out. You're either
0: yeah. in or you're out. Uh, yeah. 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 And then what what sort of is the decision-making process for you if you're either going to formally announce at some point or if you're going to actually draw out? Like, is there a certain date in mind? or are you trying to meet a fundraising goal? We're just kind of curious to learn, you know, yeah. you've, you've made this move. I saw also that you were first place in an Oregon Catalyst Poll. So clearly things seem to be going pretty well for you in the primary. So what is an exploratory committee and when do you think you'd actually come to make a decision? Well,
1: one, I just like to say we like to be innovators, the first of its kind. You know, I noticed that, you know, we did the exploratory committee that all of a sudden we got another person that's now formed an exploratory committee, which oh, I think is a bad badass. You know, you lead the <laughs> way, man. You know, lead it. You know, these presidential guys, see exploratory committees on that level all the time, it's really us wanting to be transparent. So we're looking at the governor's race. And what happens is, especially with campaign finance, you start then raising money for that effort, right? You want to do polling. You need to do research on yourself. You got to do, you know, see if you got grassroots support. When you meet with financial or possible financial contributors, you're doing leave behinds for them. And I, I just, I didn't feel right saying, yeah i'm running for mayor sandy and i've got you know a couple hundred thousand dollars in our pack to do this you know the most money ever raised for a standing marriage rates is like 10 grand. So that's not, that's not being transparent and authentic. And so what I want, but we're, we're also not ready to just say we're in this, right? So you're kind of in this gray area and the exploratory committee gave me an ability to change what our political action committee was formed for from mayor to governor, to give people kind of let them in on the joke, you know, what we're doing and be transparent about that. And then give us some time to really look at it. And so the decision's coming down to, you know, we're a campaign of the people, you know, we're just a couple of uh, middle class working people, my wife and I 11,000 population community, there's candidates looking at this race that can write themselves million dollar checks. There's others that are actively courting large corporate special interests. And we're going to need who are
0: some of those candidates?
1: I know one, Dr. Bud Pierce, I forgot. He, he's a very wealthy man who ran for governor
2: before and self-funded. So I, I forgot that he, he was- so,
1: He's self-funded as well. And then there's another another couple individuals looking at it, but I'm not gonna name names till they name themselves into the race, right? Yeah. And, gotcha. But that's what I'm talking about. We have candidates in this race. This is not scripted at all. I probably shouldn't even say this, but <laughs> we've got <laughs> candidates in this race who have campaign staff, who have fired campaign staff, who have leave behinds for people that they're meeting with for potential financial contributors who have been doing this for months and have not declared anything thing in their political action committee and so when you talk about like why am i doing this right i'm doing this because we're wanting to be transparent and authentic with people you know and you see a lot of people that are not doing that and it really goes against the rules of transparency and everything that our election system is supposed to be about quite frankly but back to as is we're just we're you know we're, we got the oregon moms union that mckenzie form they're going to have a district mom uh, in every school district across the state we're working with main street mayors to get mayors involved in all these local communities we're going to have county chairs we're, we're looking to just build out we're on this listening tour that's taking us all over the state we have over 450 individual contributors who have already contributed and the average contribution is between 50 and 70 dollars We're over 130 thousand raised you know just in this first couple of months and and so that's what the decision making process is about is what kind of support are we going to have out there and we're looking at you know mid mid-summer to make that final decision
0: to jump in
2: Well, I appreciate your transparency, and I look forward to your competitors paying a fine from the Secretary
0: of State's office as a Democrat. (laughs) I was going to say, for all of our our press friends who are listening, it sounds like you have some work to do. The
2: the bad news is no one's listening to the last minute of the episode. We (laughs) lost everybody long
0: ago. Well,
2: Mr. Mayor, thank you for making time to join the podcast and for sparring with us and answering some questions. Our last thing is, where should people go to follow you if they're interested in your campaign and they want to learn more? How can they be in touch?
1: Yep, stanpolium.org. it's mayor Stan for Oregon on our social media channels, you know, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I just want to say you know, thank you for having me on here, Ben, it was so fun going back and forth on some of these issues and that you guys, this is what we're, we're supposed to be doing right as a country. And this is the kind of leads us out of this partisan divide we have right now is challenge each other and have these conversations. And, you know, Ben, you know, I just met for the first time, you seem like a great guy. Alex, we know is a great guy. Just. <laughs> (laughs) right now now
0: but very 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 good guy
1: that's right (laughs) the good the good people is not partisan you know it's not party specific and we need to be able to have more conversations like this so i really appreciate you having me on today awesome well thanks everyone for listening don't forget to give us a five-star
2: rating and share this pod with your friends and we'll see you next time thanks everyone